Hey, everybody, welcome. We're in the back room, uh, the green room of Disrupt TV, and we're talking about party favors and tchotchkes from CES, one of the top ones. <laughs> I've got one right here. No, just kidding. Anyways, hey, we're going to do some quick introductions, reverse order. We're going to talk about uh, where you're calling in from, what you're talking about. We'll go Sanjeev, we'll go Whitney and Manish. So Sanjeev, where are you calling in from and what are we talking about today? I'm calling in from Chicago where we'll talk about digital transformation and innovation at scale oh my god you got one of the biggest digital transformation projects i know of in the marketplace whitney what's going on here what do we I have whitney johnson i am calling in from lexington virginia and i am talking about how to get smart about your growth as a person and as a company wow there's a little book here we'll put a little plug all right cool manish what's going on where are you calling in from what's hot Hey, I'm here in Minneapolis, the cold weather of Minneapolis, right? And we're going to talk about supply chain and the disruptions and what we're going to do about it. All right. Awesome. All right. Well, this is cool. Well, I guess we'll do the honors. Um, Elle, please, let's start the show. All right, everyone. Three, two. Hello and welcome. Thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar, Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host, for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, our distinguished guests, your questions using hashtag Disrupt TV, and we'll do our best to answer them live. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He's the CEO, founder of Constellation Research. He's the best-selling author of Everybody Wants to Rule the World, Surviving and Thriving in a World of Digital Giants. Ray's a regular television business and technology news contributor on Fox Business, Yahoo Finance, CNBC, Wall Street Journal, and others. He's a global sought-after keynote speaker, and in my humble opinion, one of the top futures to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wan, to Disrupt TV. Happy New Year. Hey, Happy New Year. So I'm here with my awesome co-host, co-founder, Vala Afshar, the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce, but he's also the popular author of The Pursuit of Social Business Excellence. I love this book. Executives around the world pay attention to every one of his inspirational and insightful tweets. Um, you know, dignitaries, politicians, famous people are always looking at what he's got. And of course, when he's not hosting and keynoting or leading events at Salesforce, you can find him speaking on business TV outlets such as Bloomberg and posting insightful analyses even of this show on cdnet so with that who do we have first to kick off the new year ray it's a privilege and an honor for us to have manish sharma proof chief executive operations at accenture in his role manish oversees accenture's comprehensive portfolio of business process services for specific business functions including finance procurement and supply chain marketing and sales as well as industry specific services such as banking insurance and healthcare. Manish needs a team of, listen to this, Ray, over 145,000 professionals. Whoa, 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 a thousand. <laughs> <laughs> 145 charged with developing, selling, and delivering intelligent operations to drive transformation, value, and productivity for clients. Manish is also a member of the Accenture's Global Management Committee, a strong advocate for inclusion and diversity and improving the way that the world works and lives. Manish is the founder of Accenture Rural Impact Sourcing Program, which allows Accenture to partner with small business process services firms based in rural areas and provide employment opportunities to qualified youth, improving the standard of living, financial independence, and paving the way for long-term success. What an amazing, what an amazing uh, responsibility. You can follow Manish on Twitter at M-A-N-I-S-H underscore Sharma, S-H-A-R-M-A. Welcome, Manish, to Disrupt TV. Great to be here. Great to be in discussions with all of you. Thank you, sir. Hey, we are really excited to have you. I mean, one of the hot topics this year, of course, has been supply chain disruptions. But supply chains have been really important for over the last two decades, especially given how we've globalized supply chains and where we are today. Um, how might these disruptions of 2020 and 2021 change the way we look at 2022? And I couch that because, you know, if you're trying to do any kind of modeling and you use 2021 data, you're like, you're kind of screwed, right? I mean, it's very different what we're going to expect, you know, based on what we had before and what we're about to do now. So with that, let me set you up and, and let's talk about what we can expect in 2022 under those types of circumstances. So I think a great uh, question. Um, uh, and I think all my answers will be based on the research that we did across, you know, multiple companies and multiple C-suite holders, right? I think there are many arguments about why the supply chain challenges are as they are. I think most people agree 
the pandemic and the chaotic changes in consumptions have led to short-term price hikes and supply shortages. Half of the executives we surveyed believed that that was the top reason. Second, I think as a result, the business leaders responded by getting ahead on orders, even double ordering, and enhancing the contingency plans and collaboration to ensure seamless flow of supplies. But there's also systemic challenges at work here. Highly efficient supply chains are designed to push down costs, leaving us uniquely unprepared to manage a supply shock. Simply put, when economic order hides fragility, things only work until they don't. Hmm. And 2022, to your question, is shaping up to be just as challenging, with many companies lacking critical capabilities to ensure supply chains are resilient, relevant, and responsible. As a result, 88% of the C-suite executives expect that this disruption is going to drive continuous price increases, causing consumers to cut spending just as businesses are hoping to make good on the losses. Wow. You know, this is a great points there. And, uh, you know, one of the things, one of the challenges and just, sorry, Jabal, just jumping in real quick. One of the challenges that uh, people have been saying is that, you know, the future and the past might not be predictable. So it's very, very interesting. It's, uh, it's, it's stunning statistics uh, with the Accenture research. 94% of the Fortune 1000 companies are seeing supply chain disruptions from COVID itself. Three out of four companies have had negative uh, or strongly negative impact uh, to their business with, with respect to the supply chain disruptions. Manish, you partner with a range of clients uh, across all markets, uh, companies of different sizes, giant companies to small and, and mid-size. Uh, based on your experience, what are the key differentiators uh, with those leaders and, and companies that have successfully been able to navigate through the pandemic uh, and the supply chain disruption and those that are frankly deeply uh, uh, challenged and struggling? So I think, uh, again, you know, a great question, right? The pandemic put the supply chain in national spotlight as widespread disruption, right? As all of us saw, right? Took hold of the areas that were integral to our everyday life. For example, again, 81% of the supply chain leaders, they reported the pandemic has been the greatest stress test yet. And this is according to our findings. As the lockdowns triggered widespread supply chain disruptions, the notion of the real-time visibility right, began to take on a new meaning right, and urgency for the business. Only, I think, 4% of the supply chain leaders were well-positioned, having already addressed this by breaking down the silos and enabling real-time visibility across the value chain. These future-ready leaders had transformed their ways of working by using rich data for decision-making, augmenting people with cloud and AI, and employing agile workforce models to keep pace and adapt to change. It also, I think, uh, reinforces the idea that operations can be a catalyst for competitive advantage, transformational value, and growth. It's great to hear data and a data-driven culture is what separated the folks that could navigate the turbulence and those who struggled. It's shocking to hear only 4% felt they were in position to, to meet these uh, extraordinary challenges. We have a lot more work to do uh, to help our clients uh, better position themselves for, as you said, 2022 and beyond. Yeah, I mean, this is a great report and survey. I mean, we probably don't have a chance to hit all the top items that are on there. But if I were to ask you, like, what you thought was probably the most surprising piece of data, you know, in the middle of the supply chain and inflation crisis that's going on, what do you think would be there? And what are the leaders telling you, right, personally, as well as in that survey, um, that is so important that people should walk away and say, oh, my God, we've got to do this. I think if you ask me what is the most surprising thing, right, I think was the 4% number. Hmm. 
I was really, really shocked with that because, you know, I kind of work with a lot of companies and we are, you know, across the world, right? I think that 4%, uh, you know, uh, was, a, was a pretty surprising number, right? Because how many of them are in the future ready state, right? And I think uh, the other thing I'll say is, you know, for the business leaders, right? What they should be changing in this new year to navigate some of this uh, global supply chain, uh, you know, crisis, right? I think just as COVID drove the remote working and improved ways of operating and often for the better, right? So too will the changes to the supply chain management and chief among them is creating the right level of visibility or a digital thread. And that means weaving the cloud and the data-driven technologies such as AI, analytics throughout your operations so your people can predict and monitor changes in demand and see disruption as it is unfolding. It will uncover right weak links and vulnerabilities that can be addressed, right? To make order fulfillment fast, flexible, cost-effective, and sustainable. Yeah, and it's a great point. One of the things that I mean, you know, are you worried about, you know, kind of like, you know, we have storage locker wars, right? People like find all these things in the face. Are we gonna have container like that are out there where we have no idea who sent them and who received them? They'll be auctioned off and this big supply chain glut shows up in Q1. Do you think do you expect that to happen or something crazy like that? I think, you know, there might be instances, uh, but I don't think so. it could be widespread because I think uh, people have learned over the last two years quite a lot. Uh, you know, uh, but uh, the way you are des describing, I don't think so. I don't see that kind of chaos happening. Uh, but yes, I think there will be instances of that for sure. No, the reason I ask is like we had clients like forego their um, you know global shipping, right? And instead of having them on cargo ships or in container ships, they decided to charter planes, right? So anywhere between a million and a half and two million a flight, um, and it was going for like seven hundred thousand dollars like six months ago. Right. So a lot of people air freighted everything and didn't go through shipping. And, and so we, we were saw, we were seeing that and we're like, what are they going to do with all these goods when they actually do show up? These band-aids are not sustainable strategies. We have seen double booking, right? Double booking because yeah. we, people are wanting to ensure that there is no shortages, right? So yeah, of course, there will be both these coming, but people kind of moving into different directions and everything else. I hope that that level of chaos should not happen. I'm hoping so. not, right? Like yeah. my neighbor is actually does like procurement for a big chip manufacturer, and she's telling me like this is crazy. I mean, like what's still going on? So, yeah. well, let's 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 talk about some tangible ways that organizations can better position themselves uh, with this uh, disruption that continues to persist in 2022. What I love about Accenture Research is you know you baseline trends and what's happening from all segments, all geographies, all sectors. But then you also provide recommendations based on those 4% of companies that are doing well. And the five supply chain priorities uh, for immediate action that the research shows is put people first, leverage data to improve visibility, define segmentation to prioritize demand, build a sales and ops SWAT team, and lastly, evaluate supply chain scenarios, scenario planning using analytics data so that you don't have blind spots in terms of these trends. My question to you, Manish, the put people first. Accenture has consistently been named one of the best companies to work for because it has a people first culture. Can you give us some advice in terms of your experience working with these 4% of the companies that are doing successful work navigating the disruption? How do they put people first? What are some of the, is it flexible work schedules? Is it is it mentoring and sponsorships? Is it what you're doing where you're focusing on the underserved population and how you can help these individuals grow their careers? And, 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 and what are some of the ways that you, companies can put people first? I think there are multiple ways. And I think our company has been in the forefront, hmm. right? You know, I of the, but I, I'll say a couple of points, right? Even in the last two years, right, and when things have been going on, everything for us has been putting people's health and safety first. Bravo. Their welfare, their families, the stress that they are carrying, the wellness that they require, putting that at the heart of everything that one does, right? And I think our clients appreciate that. Because we are, you know, in a, in a long-term game here, right? And, there, you know, there could be all kinds of disruptions as we were all discussing this prior to the show, right? But 
people's health and safety, their family's health and safety. I think putting that as the first criteria, you know, really helps our people and the companies and the clients that we serve. So that is point one. The second thing is while we are continuing to do this, right, huge investment around learning. Mm, bravo. Bravo. Identifying the new skills that are required for the future. We have a, a population which is, you know, across the globe, right? We operate. And for us, the reskilling, the learning part, acquiring the new technologies is extremely important. And, you know, I'm pretty proud to be associated, you know, uh, with a company like Accenture where we have really invested even in the last two years, you know, like, you know, so much of time and money on just creating some of the training modules and ensuring that people are working towards and people love it. Right. And I think putting some of these things around people's health and safety, learning as, as some of the key objectives, acquiring new skill sets which are relevant for the future, being future ready. Right. And I think those are some of the principles that we have seen some of our clients and us do really well. And which really helps us in a long, uh, you know, over a long period of time. I have to ask you, how much of an awesome uh, responsibility you must feel leading a 145,000 person organization. I mean, especially in the last two years, especially knowing all of us, all of us are struggling in some ways, uh, some, you know, it, it, much more than others, but it must be uh, incredibly rewarding, but at the same time, incredible amount of pressure for you to continue to lead such a large organization. I think, you know, for me, one of the things, you know, people always ask me, I've been here for 27 years and what has been the most important thing? It is seeing people grow. Grow that. in front of my eyes as leaders, as people that. who know the content. And I think I've seen people who came and I've seen them get married, have kids, build their houses right in front of my eyes. And that That's has been awesome. the most fulfilling thing. That's awesome. That's yeah, awesome. no, that is awesome. I mean, when you watch that growth and when you can watch people succeed, I mean, you can't beat that. So, hey, um, Real quick, um, what's for fun? When we go back and we think about, you know, your daily day, you know, like what, what do you do? I mean, what, what keeps you energized? What keeps you motivated? Uh, because, you know, leading that many people, you've got to have that kind of energy, that kind of enthusiasm, and you definitely have a lot of it. Yeah, no, I think I, I would say I put it in two buckets, right? I think one is our people. I think they really inspire. They inspire me every single day. It was, you know, if I look at our automation journey and some of the other stuff that we have done, they were all inspired by our people on the floor who are doing the daily work, right? So that's kind of one uh, uh, part of it. And there is just a joy. It's become, uh, you know, I know we are large, but still it, it is like a family. And that really inspires me. I think then if I look at, you know, from a personal front and even from an office front, you know, from our family, my daughter, you know, she inspires me because she has got a different perspective. My <laughs> wife, she puts me always, you know, in the humility and being on the ground. That really inspires. And, you know, uh, uh, my boss, uh, you know, CEO of Accenture, Julie Sweet, right? She inspires me with a relentless this thing around reinventing and recreating and changing, uh, you know, uh, the way we operate and the way we can deliver, uh, you know, tremendous value to our clients. So I think those kind of, uh, you know, people and uh, three women, I think they, they really inspire me a lot, uh, you know, in, in a big way, uh, you know, as I look, uh, you know, uh, uh, where we are today. That's fantastic. Wow. Your, boss, your boss inspires all of Salesforce. We've learned so much with partnering with you and your boss and the entire team at Accenture. You mentioned the word automation um, in, in, in your response. Uh, this tremendous trends and advice and analysis from Accenture, uh, emphasizing the importance of automation in, in a more decentralized digital first economy. Can you talk, uh, and this will be my last question, about your point of view specifically on the importance of automation and perhaps even companies that you feel are you know, pioneers, trailblazers in terms of automation? So I think, you know, uh, first of all, uh, uh, let me kind of clarify. I think automation is, you know, again, you know, when you talk about the people first stuff, it is to ensure that people do not do anything which is measurable, repeatable, predictable, and transactional in, in nature. People have to do, they have to be supervisor of robots. And I think that is the principle that we do. Second principle I would say is automation is not about cutting, you know, uh, 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 some task or something. Automation 
we should do automation for six purposes. And the way we look at it is it has to enhance the customer satisfaction. Mm. Second one, it has to improve the quality. The third one, it has to crash the lead times. The fourth one, it has to improve the controls. The fifth one, it is also to about improving the compliance. And the last one, the most important one, improve people's lives so they are not, not doing anything which is mundane and a boring job. Mm. If those six principles are really fully done, only then you automate. You're not doing automation for the sake of just cutting something, right? It is the end-to-end -end transformation. And that is the way we kind of look at, you know, automation in a very holistic way. It has to be a thoughtful automation around what uh, the processes that we are attacking. Brilliant answer. Thank you so much. Brilliant. Thank you. I agree 100%. This, this is wonderful. We are here with... Marnie Sharma, Group CEO of Operations at Accenture. He is future ready to go. You can follow him on Twitter at Manish underscore Sharma. Thank you so much for being here with us on Friday. And of course, sharing your insights in one of the top questions CEOs are asking, which is around supply chains, around what's happening, automation, and of course, leadership of teams. So thanks a lot for being here. Thank, Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you, sir. Happy New Year. Wow. That was a great answer. <laughs> automation. Uh, okay. <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> that was awesome. Okay, speaking of awesome, our next guest, Whitney Johnson, is the CEO of Human Capital Consultancy Disruption Advisors, an Inc. 5000 fastest growing private company in America. Uh, one of the uh, 50 leading business thinkers uh, in the world. In fact, 2021 ranked number eight as named by the Thinkers 50. Whitney and her team are experts in helping people grow their people to grow their organizations. Having worked at Fortune 100 companies, been an award-winning uh, equity analyst on Wall Street, invested with Harvard's Clay Christensen, and coached alongside the round Marshall Goldsmith, Whitney understands how companies work, how investors think, and how the best coaches coach, all of which she brings to her work coaching CEOs and C-suite executives. Whitney uh, works with high-growth venture-backed startups and Fortune 1000 companies across a variety of sectors. She's an award-winning author of Disrupt Yourself, a world-class keynote speaker. May listen to this, with 1.8 million followers on LinkedIn. That's just, that's a, that's a huge number. Wow. <laughs> uh, Whitney's a frequent lecturer for Harvard Business School's Corporate Learning and her new book, Smart Growth, How to Grow Your People to Grow Your Company, which we're gonna be talking about. Whitney also hosts a weekly Disrupt Yourself podcast. She also hosts weekly LinkedIn Live, Calm Amidst Chaos, and publishes a popular weekly newsletter. You can follow Whitney on Twitter at Johnson Whitney. Welcome, uh, Whitney. Welcome back, Whitney, to Disrupt TV. Thank you. And by the way, I've had both you and Ray on my podcast. Yes. What a privilege. What, I can't, 1.8 million followers on LinkedIn, Whitney. That's just, that's, that's a massive audience. Congratulations to you. Well, thank you. It's it's not quite 145,000 people working for you like Manish. He was. That's a big group. Yeah. yeah. And I loved what he said. I love to help people grow. That was the most inspiring thing that he said. That's yeah, no, it was amazing. But what was more amazing is sometime, I, was it this week? I'm floating around and I'm on Bloomberg. Or was it last week? It's uh, You're on Bloomberg. I was hearing your whole interview. <laughs> so pretty wild. And uh, listening into the book and I was thinking, hey, this is great, right? And you were suggesting that 2022 would be the year of tremendous growth in the workplace and that the great resignation would be better called the great aspiration. And we're calling here at Constellation the great refactoring that's happening as people are changing their personal work-life aspirations, what's happening in terms of new business models, new experiences that are going on from metaverse to all these kind of things. And so talk a little bit about this great aspiration because I think it's very important for people to understand uh, the context behind it because it sets the stage for a lot of what you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so I'm gonna adjust my screen so I'm looking at you and not at myself as I'm talking. Um, so, uh, so as you as you framed this so beautifully, is we are in a period now where people are coming through the pandemic. We hope, and whenever you come through a severe crisis, there is the opportunity for growth. And I believe that we are in a period of post-traumatic growth, a period where people are saying, "I want to grow." I'm ready to grow. And as they are resigning, yes, they're leaving things. But I think what's really happening in many, many instances is people are aspiring to more. 
they've taken a moment, they've had an opportunity to reflect and they're thinking, you know, I want more for my life. I want to grow. I want things to be different. And so I think of it much more of not so much leaving something, but aspiring to a better, um, more productive, more fulfilling life. Yeah, it's, there's over, if I'm not mistaken, over 11 million open positions in the U.S. Today's job report estimate was 400,000 new jobs, but the number actually was 199,000, so far below the target. People seem to be more selective in terms of where they want to work. So it may be that they're more methodical, more smart about their career. Uh, you, you've said in your book, if you want to be serious about growth, you need to get smart about growth. Can you yeah. share your thought process? How do you apply more intelligence and context and foresight in terms of determining your, your, your career trajectory and growth? Yeah. So one of the things that I've done, and, and we've talked a bit about this in the past, is this idea of the S-curve, the S-curve mm -hmm. of learning. And um, this is something that was originally popularized by the sociologist Rogers back in the 60s, the 50s and 60s. And it helped you look at how quickly um, a group would change or how quickly an innovation would be adopted. And uh, what I did, the insight that I had as I was working with Clayton and we were investing in the Disruptive Innovation Fund was that the S-curve could also help us understand how we grow and, and specifically what growth looks like. So that every time you start something new, you're at the launch point and growth is going to feel slow. But then you put in the effort and you'll accelerate into competence and confidence and growth will feel fast. That's the sweet spot. And then you'll get to the top of that curve and you'll hit mastery and growth starts to feel slow again. So slow, fast, slow is how you grow. And, and the reason this is so useful is that if you have this visual, right, exactly. If you have this visual of what growth looks like and you know where you are in your growth, you know where you are on the mountain, as it were, mm -hmm. then you know what's next. And so for people who are smart about their growth, if you're serious about growth, you're going to get smart about your growth because you'll be able to move through that growth cycle more quickly because you're oriented. Makes sense. Yeah, no, it's a great point. And, and let's pick up on that, right? You said, and I've heard you say this before, it's if you're going to get smart about your growth, you have to do it in what was it, a audit of your adult self, mm -hmm. right? Um, and and what what does that mean? Because I'm, I'm I don't think I'm an adult. <laughs> but what is this adult audit all about here? Uh, in terms of like you know reassessing what you have to do. So yeah, so you you look at where you are today, and you're saying, all right, so I want to grow. I now know that I've got this map for me to think about growth and where I am, whether I'm at the launch point, sweet spot, mastery. Um, my ability to really be a peak performer is going to be dependent on how quickly I can move through that growth cycle. So what you want to do is audit what are the things that I am doing or not doing that are going to hinder my, my ability to go up, actually. So things I'm doing or not doing that are either going to help or hinder my ability to move up that S-curve. And so that's the audit. It's It's things like um, what, uh, what did I, you know, what did I love to do as a child? What are the unspoken rules in my family? Um, some of those, those ideas or, um, yeah, unspoken rules. I, you know what, actually I'm going to have to, I don't remember off the top of my head. So that adult audit is, is those unspoken things that may have happened in your family that made you who you are. And you need to look at those because they can help you. But they you can just also say that, right? You, you say something about excavating shadow yeah. values. Shadow values, right? yes. And those shadow values, like what, what are those? Is it just innate in you that you believe in something or that you have those values, but you've never expressed them or you maybe suppress them over time? Yeah. So the way I'm thinking about shadow values is, um, is when you say something, for example, like Manish just said, people first, people are important. Mm. And then when you look at your day and how you structured your day, did you have any conversations with your people? Did you have any wow. discussion about how am I going to develop my people? And so you look at what you profess and then you look at what you actually do. And if there's a gap between those two, then you now know that you've got a professed value and you've got a shadow value. And I then um, once you know what your shadow value is, then you can start doing that work of saying, okay, so I'm saying that my people are important, but I'm not ever thinking about how to develop them. 
what other value is at play that's stopping me from doing this thing that I say is important. And, and it's likely, certainly in our culture, the thing that's at play is I've got these deliverables. I said I was going to reach this sales goal of X, Y, or Z. And in order for me to feel like my identity is intact, I've got to achieve that goal. So even though people are important to me, I'm putting that sales goal first because um, in order for my sense of self to be intact, I need to hit that goal. Now I know I've got a shadow value. Now the question is, what do I want to do with that? Do I actually want to just live with it? I might, or I may say, I guess I want to do something different if I want to have those two reconcile. I basically want to bring the shadow out and put the shadow together with my professed value. I think I just had an aha moment. I, I think I just realized that much of my time spent on Twitter is auditing myself. I think that when I share certain points of view and core beliefs and guiding principles, uh, and I often repeat these principles, I think I'm auditing myself. I think I'm by, by writing and sharing, uh, it's 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 uh, I'm, I'm I'm checking whether I'm uh, my, whether my thoughts, my words, and my actions are aligned. It's almost like an authenticity audit. Um, yeah, I love wow. it. I, I really, I, I need to think about that more. But as you were saying audit, I, I realized these reminders, daily reminders are, are mostly for myself. Um, and, 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 and reflecting on just growth and change, whether it was starting a, a new job or a role or, or a hobby, I've been very fortunate in my career where I had very powerful sponsors who, who, who I respected and I trust and I liked. Mm -hmm. So when they challenged me to try something new, when everything inside me said, you are not qualified to do this, <laughs> uh, because the sponsor really cared for my success, I, 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 went, I went along. And so I've had several hard pivots, uh, but I, I attribute it to having great sponsors. Yeah. If you don't have a sponsor, why is it so hard for people to make these adjustments, even if they yeah. have a, a smart plan that they've put into play? Such a great point, um, Vala. And so I actually have a question for you. When you first made that jump at Interacist and Chris Kroll moved you over into customer service that we wrote about in Building 18. You remember. I totally remember that. <laughs> and the question is, was he, were you afraid you couldn't do it? Because I thought uh, you didn't want to do it. Uh, I think a little bit of both. Uh, I was leading an engineering organization. I studied electrical engineering, graduate, undergrad. So I felt that building products was was my future. And, and now it was building relationships. Uh, and uh, as an introvert, it was a little bit of both. I felt I have no experience running a global service organization with multi-hundred million dollar revenue. Uh, and uh, and, uh, and uh, yeah, and I was scared. Uh, and that was a big change for me. <laughs> that's interesting. That's interesting to hear that. And okay, so to answer your question then, um, so the, what, what a mentor or sponsor is doing when you're jumping to a new curve is they're effectively saying, all right, I know you're at the launch point and I know it's scary and I know it's frightening, but you can do it. You can do it. And I believe in you, I'm, I'm going to encourage you, and I'm also gonna get you the training that you need. And I'm gonna value the fact that you're inexperienced and have all sorts of insights that I might not have because I'm more experienced. So that's the first thing. And that's why a mentor and, and a, a great sponsor is so important. Um, but what I would say is if you don't have that person in your court, what you can do is by understanding, at least as a starting point, this S curve, when you're doing something new and you feel like I have no idea what I'm doing and I'm feeling afraid and I'm feeling impatient, I'm feeling scared, then you can talk yourself through it. You can mentor yourself and say, oh, I'm feeling uncomfortable right now. This is normal. I'm supposed to feel this way. And so I'm going to encourage myself. I'm going to go out and get the training I need. So by having that visual, basically by having that map, you can be your own guide. In an ideal world, you'll have a guide and be your own guide. But if you don't have an external guide, you can at the very least be your internal guide, which is always going to be the most important guide anyway. Sure, sure. I mean, I mean, if you're doing really disruptive work, 
you should have butterflies in your stomach, right? I mean, totally. Be... I mean, kind of like the butterflies that I just had when you asked me about the adult audit. And I'm like, I don't remember what those are. <laughs> so I will have to go back. You can bet the next time someone asks me that question, I will be able to answer that question. That's, but that's the... the launch point of the curve, right? I haven't answered that question yet. Well, that's that's when you write multiple best-selling books. You know, it's 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 okay to forget a few of the topics. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, but let's go back to the S curve, right? This is something that you write about a lot, and you said something. Um, I think it was on Bloomberg when I was listening on on the fourth um, about managing your attrition through the S curve, mm -hmm. which was an interesting thing. I never thought about it that way. How does that work? Because you know, this S curve is like it's like this multi-purpose jack, like you. Know, Swiss Army knife going around. It so. is a Swiss Army knife, and it starts with an S. Um, the reason it's a protection tool is that when you have this artifact, this way to talk about growth, you're able to have a conversation with someone on your team and say, so where do you think you are in your growth in this role? Do you think you're at the launch point sweet spot mastery? You can then say, well, here's where I think you are. And you can take it in an assessment that we have, the S-curve insight tool. But even in the absence of that, then what will happen is, for example, you may say, I think you're in the sweet spot. And they may say, I think I'm in mastery. Well, the biggest predictor of what a person is going to do is not where you think they are. It's where nope. they think <laughs> they are. So if you've got a person on your team who thinks they're in mastery and they're not a high performer, well, that's good because they'll leave because they're going to get, they'll, they'll go find another job. But if they're a high performer <laughs> and you want to keep them, you need yeah. to know that they perceive themselves in mastery. And so that's why it's a retention tool is it allows you to have the conversation to locate, to pinpoint where people are. And so to do something about where they are before they've already got one foot out of the door, because once they've got one foot out the door, it's very difficult to pull them back in. I feel like we should have you at our conference having everybody do an adult audit in October because I think that would be kind of fun. Let's do it. Let's do it. That would be fun. Let's do it. Let's do it. It's October 25th to 28th, but I'll talk to you guys later. All right. Well, Whitney, you heard our prior guest, Manish, who's leading a 145,000 person organization. In your book, you talk about ideas of managing your team as a portfolio of S curves. What advice would you have for Manish in terms of? Okay. Yeah. All right, Manish. That's a big portfolio. He's not on anymore, but Manish, if you're listening, so what I would do is I would I would administer this tool to his entire team, and then I would say, all right, where is everybody? Um, you know, if you're our starting point is always going to be the bell curve, the standard distribution, as we want to see. 60% at least in the sweet spot and then 20% at the launch point and 20% in mastery. That's our starting point. But depending on what Manish is trying to get done right now in the organization, um, it's a larger organization. They have certain um, initiatives that they're trying to undergo. We mm -hmm. might tweak that and say, you know, actually we want more people at the launch point. We want 30% because we want to build our pipeline and we've got enough people in mastery to train them. So what that's what I would do is I would look at where are you and, um, and then based on what your organization needs right now, then we're going to optimize the portfolio. Another thing we would look at is if he's got 30 or 40% of his people in mastery, then we'd say, okay, Manish, we got to talk. Because if all of those people decide that they're going to leave at the same time to go do something else, you now have a major pipeline problem. So we need to figure out how to engage those folks by either having them do S-curve loops and bring other people along, give them challenges that will put them back into the sweet spot. And in some instances, find a very, instances, find a graceful way for them to go do something else so that they can open up a spot for other people. So that's what I would do is I would administer the assessment, see where everybody is, see what his needs are, and then start optimizing and reallocating accordingly one by one, because that's where it starts. What a wonderful way to career path professionals. I, I personally believe one of the major reasons people leave companies is they don't have a clear, visible career path. That's right. Uh, so hopefully CHROs who are listening 
can use this framework and really understand, uh, you know, their talent pipeline and how they can help career path individuals within their organization. Something my company really cares about. This is what I love about Salesforce. Yeah. They really do care about individual career paths. Sorry, Ray, go ahead. <laughs> no, not at all. I think it's, uh, you know, we're, we're definitely seeing a whole bunch of uh, reinvention, right? This going from great resignation to great aspiration, I think is really important here. That. And I think, uh, you know, definitely something we're, we're going to be talking about all year uh, and probably for years to come. So we're here with Whitney Johnson, founder and CEO of Disruption Advisors. You can follow her on Twitter at Johnson Whitney. And more importantly, catch our inspirational tweets. You've got podcasts. And of course, check out her blog and website. So thanks a lot for being here uh, and happy new year. Thank, thank you. you happy new year to you too. Cheers. Thank you. One of the biggest minds in the world in terms of disruption, business and individual uh, amazing. Please follow Whitney Johnson. Speaking of big mind and incredible talent, <laughs> uh, Sanjeev Saho is Executive Vice President and Chief Digital Officer for Ingram Micro. In his role, Sanjeev leads Ingram Micro strategic efforts to further accelerate the development of innovation, world-class customer and user experience designed to shape and create competitive advantage and differentiation for the business. Uh, Sanjeev's responsibilities include leading the digital transformation and modernization of the company's customer-facing platforms, including applications, subscription services, consumption models uh, for billing. Uh, Sanjeev has authored numerous technology models and white papers on risk and innovation leadership, leadership development, innovation marketing, open source architecture, mobile strategies, and he holds several patents on dynamic communications and streaming for mobile devices. Sanjeev is a member of the Forbes Technology Council and a contributor to Wired and Harvard Business Review. He's an excellent follow on Twitter at S-A-H-O-O-S-A-N-J. Welcome, Sanjeev, to the Shroud TV. Thank you. Thank you, Vala. Great to you. Pleasure to be here. Thank you, sir. Hey, we're really excited to have you. You are one of our BT150 Hall of Famers, uh, and that means a lot. Uh, these are folks that have done some amazing transformation. And I'm going to start with a question that's kind of uh, not, not necessarily a trick question, but it, it's a big question. What does digital transformation mean to you? And here's why. I mean, and, and from your stats and your team stats, Ingram Micro touches 80% of all technology in the world. So when you say digital transformation, what do you mean? Yeah, thank you, Ray. I think that's an interesting question. I think digital transformation means a lot of things to a lot of people. And uh, I feel that digital transformation, it's not about technology. It's not only about technology. I think it's, the first thing is it's about a mindset and a spirit. It's about starting with a business problem or a business opportunity and figuring out a way that how you can solve it. You know, either a better mm. customer experience, either a better way to change your business model, making sure a company or an organization is prepared for different routes to market. So what means is that unlike a start and end of a transformation, like an agile or a process, it has to be the DNA of the organization. It never stops. It's a journey and a spirit which means that you are always trying to make sure, make improvements every single day, not like we are doing a transformation for a year or two, it doesn't work, which means that the way you look at your technology, the way we look at your platform, the way we look at your customers, the way we look at employees, tie them all together through a spirit process communication to drive proper value. And one of the other thing, Ray, in my mind is, a lot of the times we figure out that we are stuck into a tool or a platform about digital, but it's not about that. It's about what is the value that you create out of that technology. So one part is value creation and one part is value capture. Unless you are capturing value, which is actual tangible dollars in EBITDA margin revenue, it's kind of pointless, uh, which brings to my point that as an example, a lot of people talk about AI machine learning cloud. Just you, going to cloud is not digital transformation. Yeah, maybe a little bit. Let's say we take the data on the cloud, use artificial intelligence to figure out how we can understand the behaviors of our customers. What are predicting what they would buy and give it at their hands in, at the time of purchase. That is a new way of generating demand. In my mind, that is transformation. So we have to every single day think about using the technology, using the processes, using data 
how do you figure out a better business model transformation? In my mind, that is digital transformation. What a great answer. What a great answer. And you're right, Ray, it's, it's, a, it's a big question. There's a lot of dimensions to it. And Sanjeev touched upon you know, culture and people and process and technology, that spirit of changing yourself, as Whitney said, so you can position your company to create value at the speed of need. Sanjeev talked about at that moment of truth, can you deliver value that results in dollars and profit and EBITDA? So at the end of the day, businesses exist to make money. Uh, but it's not about just shareholders. It's, we're, we're talking about stakeholder capitalism. So I love that spirit, the word spirit in the answer. That's the first time I've ever heard someone describe digital transformation in the context of a spirit. Um, but so, so how does this journey of digitizing a company begin? How do you, Sanjeev, when you recruit talent into your organization, when you're trying to change the spirit of, um, or, or enhance, not change, enhance the spirit of Ingram Micro, what, what, where do you start? How, how do you build advocacy and champions and people that are passionate about creating value at the speed of need? Yeah, that's a great question, Vala. I think it is all about breaking the silos and communication. I think hmm. empathy goes a big way in digital transformation. And hmm. I, I was talking about a few days ago that in our need to automate and automate, we forget the most important aspect of digital is humans. Hmm. Our customers are humans. Our employees are humans. Hmm. Our partners are humans. And how technology is adopted by humans and understanding their pain points is a big part of success of digital. We can build the best technology in the world, the best mobile app, the best AI algorithm. But if it does not, it's not getting adopted, it's not going to be useful. So the number one thing, Vala, we start with focusing on why. Rallying people from the business operations technology, figure out why. Which means that sometimes I have this five why rule. Okay, we want to serve these customers this way. Why? Why? We have to break by five why. So. Yeah. Rallying people around why is the first thing. Second thing is asking the questions about what. Let's say we look at all aspects of our you know, organization from customers to our you know, internal operations and figure out what are the pain points, what, what perspective, what does it work, what doesn't work. So that's the what part about how we actually working out. And it's actually interesting thing, Vala, and this is I always talk about communicate with compassion and execute with passion. As we want to be really successful in digital, the way we communicate about not pushing a technology on our operations, but understand what is the pain point? It takes so much time to actually update an application, understand the problem, and then figure out how we can solve them. That approach goes a long, long way. So then is the what part. Design thinking helps a lot in bringing us together. Like we do a lot of design thinking. Just go to the whiteboard storyboard in bringing talent together all across the company. So I call it why, what, and then how, and I add it with the end it with a wow. So you can do <laughs> why, what, how to build it. And then the experience has to be wow. I mean, amazing experience. So in, in our organization, in, in, in digital transformation, we actually do a lot of this design thinking so that people get this mindset about it's a joint vision. It's not about IT or business or operations. We are all in this together which means that as we are looking at talent and people bringing in, it's that mindset, the spirit, because digital has blurred between technology. Everybody is a full stack engineer. Everybody is a product, you know, so which means that the focus on solving problems, the focus on why is the most important aspect as we go uh, with digitization. It's amazing. You're a technologist, you're a former CIO, award-winning practitioner. But when I listen to you, you you, you sound more like an artist, uh, you know, to you, to you, it's the art of and science of understanding the why, the how and the what. And of course, at the end, making sure you wow. But the, when you talk about design thinking and whiteboarding, to me, it feels like your craft is less about technology and more about people, which is what our first and second guests also emphasize. So I love hearing successful technology executives really thinking about the the human part of the equation first before they jump into the cloud, the AI, the blockchain, and all the other technologies that enable some of the wow capabilities. But they, you don't lead with that. 
you lead with, how can I delight my stakeholders? I love that. You're an artist, my friend. You're an artist. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Walla. Yeah, so so that that's that's part of it, right? I mean, leading technical expertise, uh, you know, leadership skills, it's important. Uh, it really comes down to how do you inspire digital innovation and transformation in a company culture? And, and keep in mind, like, you're a $49, $50 billion company. I mean, this is not a small entity at all. I mean, you're one of the largest, you are the largest wholesale uh, technology provider in the world. I mean, among many other things. And, and that's, that's pretty powerful. So how do you do that? And, and what, what do you do to get people fired up? Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think there are a few, three or four things I think uh, Ray is, is very important. And Ingram has an incredible culture, right? The best mm -hmm. thing about Ingram is that, you know, when I came to the company six months ago, everybody wants to, you know, move, everybody wants to change. We want to serve our customers better. But the first thing I talked about, Vala, is, you know, and you're right, I am a technologist at heart. You know, I love technology. But over the years, I have realized that technology without value creation is pointless because, as I mentioned before, we can build the best technology in the world. But if we cannot really use it to our users and create value, you know, it's, it's, it's really not useful. So the first thing is r rallying the whole organization around a vision. So basically, what is our digital vision? It's not like building another digital platform. It's about how do we go from becoming a channel only, which is today, to become a demand-driven customer experience. How can we become a platform? How do we serve our customers to a platform? How do we build that? single pane of glass for our customers to create the true experience for a massive complex organization. We operate in like all over the world, you know, 160 mm -hmm. countries, we operate in 59 countries, so massive operations. How do we create that experience for our customers? How do we create that experience for our partners and our vendors to be better? So taking that spirit and rallying all across the organization with the spirit and design thinking, it is communication. And voila, one of the things that we as technologists miss out is Communication is very important in, in a technology world to actually get that compassion, get that adoption. So number one is that rallying the spirit and communication. Number two, it has to be a proper planning. It is not just planning for how do we roll out technology. It is a balance between value creation and value capture. And how do we actually, let's say we want to go build an e-commerce model or e-commerce platform or how do we make sure which segment of customers you're going to attract first? How do we make sure your profitability is actually measured better? How do you make sure that as you are doing the supply side, your profitability per skewed or solutions is better? How do we, so basically creating a very, very balanced execution plan is extremely important because without that plan, you know, it's going to be just a technology delivery plan not an actual operation plan. So that's the second part, what we are working on right now to create that plan. We actually have an, our digital transformation has three pillars. We call it data, engines, and experience. So global data, we are working on a lot of harmonization of global data, bringing the data together. Sure. It boils down to the engines, which are autonomous business logic, which are chained together through API ecosystem on the cloud and microservices, so that it gives us the infinite routes, the market, and chain them as we want, and then create a frictionless customer experience on the top. So we have planned how we are actually building this. Uh, so once we actually do this, these two, the third thing is, you, uh, while you pointed out the architecture of the technology, today we have cloud, we have data clouds, we have technology where we can actually do real-time change data capture on the cloud from the ERPs. Wow. We have machine learning and AI factories that can take data real time, process it, understand patterns of our customers. How can we take all of this and build that intelligence? Imagine we have 42 years of data as Ingram wow. Michael are selling technology, 42 years. If we can take that data fabric and create that real time data, do that. Secondly, we are working this on cloud such a way that we can pivot as a market pivots, you know, so going to our customers, going to the customer needs, giving our resellers and the VARs the technology to actually pivot to the customers. So that's the th third part, that whole API, microservices, AI, cloud, do that. And the fourth is very, very important, as I talked about, is how do we make sure that we consistently demonstrate value? How much of EBITDA margin revenue is generated by this? It's not another tool or platform. Is it my core business? 
that's when you difference between a digital transformation and a business model transformation because digital transformation is creating digital assets but a business model transformation tied together is actually changing our business that's where most of those transformations fail my two cents is we have to link them together from the start not at the end it's 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 fantastic to hear you talk about the different pillars of success at, at, at one instance i feel like i'm listening to a cio in another instance, I feel like I'm listening to a CMO, chief marketing, because you're talking about demand generation and value at the speed of need and uh, creating greater awareness. So as a CDO, do you feel that you have one foot in marketing, one foot in IT, and, and you're trying to harmonize and you know, act as a bridge between the two functions? Because again, you're speaking, uh, and I'm learning from, it feels like multiple lines of business as you shared your stack of key key success factors yeah so vala uh, personally for me you know i over the last few years i have taken a lot of interest in actually business pnl operations as well as technology so i think that it's two sides of the coin so yeah. if you look at the cdo role today at ingram you know it's not only just building digital technology or building digital platforms we actually do the whole digital transformation office and the business transformation where you bring them together to actually showcase how you are servicing your customers better. Let's say today, if we put more business through our digital platform, what is the incremental EBITDA can we generate provided we still delight our customers, delight our internal operations. So the way I, the hat that I, I wear right now and we would like to wear is one without the other is not going to work. That's my philosophy, right? I realized that yeah. just if you have the technology, it takes a lot of time to actually get buy-in agreement. But if you start with, the both sides of the coin together. So yeah. I call it the whole CXO is blurring right now. It's not CIO, CDO, CMO. Yeah. You know, it's about I call it CVO, Chief Value Officer. We need to create yeah. value. And if we focus on the value, then everything else blurs because every organization wants to focus on the value right now. So that's where we, we and and good thing about Ingram is that we don't really care about you know who is where. You know, it's a very collaborative culture. You know, and and really we all work together with one thing in mind how do we serve our customers better and we are moving at incredible speed and it's not possible whether the employees you know and the customers and the internal operations not all come together to to, to sell this. I, my, my experience tells me regardless of your title you have to always understand the language of business is finance so to, <laughs> you need to you need to map your projects and your goals and your initiatives and your spirit of growth to to financial outcomes that that, that show tangible value creation Go ahead, Ray. Go ahead. Yeah, no, that and that definitely is a great point, right? I mean, uh, Sanjeev, I think a lot of people are probably asking you, like, where do they start, right? The role of the chief digital officer is new. Lots of people are looking uh, for advice as to, you know, what things they should think about. And, and we only got a few more minutes. And what I really want to know is what leaders, you know, who are suddenly being asked to do digital transformation. I mean, every, every CXO has now been enabled for value and is now a digital leader. The question is, what do they, what do they have to do? What do they do to get ready? I mean, You've got like, you know, you've got like a general, you know, you've got stuff from Harvard Business School. You've got backgrounds from MIT and AI, right? You're, you've got tech and business. You've built, you know, operations for like E-Trade and some of the biggest companies. So, so but, but what skill sets, what are important now um, in, in making someone successful? I think I will break it down to very few simple things, really, irrespective of the degrees and experiences. As a technologist, first focus on why, you know, like why the technology is used and get a lot of business acumen. I think understanding the PNL of the company, understanding the revenue, understanding customer segmentation, really spending time with the operations of an organization is very, very important because if you do not do that, if you do not spend the time, then you can cannot build the right technology. So that's very important, you know. Number two, I would say is that also focus on the kind of talent that you hire. You know, like see, I used to use three quotients to hire talent because I cannot do everything. Are you myself. hiring right now? Yeah, I'm hiring right now. We are hiring a lot. So if you know anybody who is talented and wants to be part of a digital transformation, you know, send them my with the proper spirit. With the proper spirit. We'll send you a few people. We'll send you a few people. Yeah. But I think when you look at the talent, the I, I used to call it like CQ, EQ, and IQ, three quotients. CQ is competency quotient, means they should really know what they're good at. If you are a programmer, you should be stellar at the programming. That's CQ. But EQ is how you can work with people. It talks about the mindset and the spirit, focusing on what can you actually do that. 
But the IQ is not traditional IQ. Today, what digital transformation is done is it actually changed to more about can you connect the dots? Can you connect how you are servicing your customer experience with the cloud you know, uh, technology I'm writing? The AI algorithm I'm writing, how will it impact my basis points in my pricing? So that IQ means focusing on why and connecting the dots. That's extremely important. So make sure that you hire talent accordingly. And number three is always ask questions to the business. So it's not about a business degree. You don't have to always go to Harvard, but you can actually get the knowledge being in operations day to day. Because if you can solve the pain points of the operations, and the frontline managers, you would be driving a successful strategy, not digital, but business, but a value strategy. And that's what advice I'll give you. Chief value officer. I love it. I love We've it. learned so much new today. We've got Sanjeev Sahu, EVP and Chief Digital Officer at Ingram Micro BT150 Hall of Famer. Um, you can follow him on Twitter at Sahu, S-A-N-J. And more importantly, thank you so much for being on the show and, of course, um, being here with us this Friday, sharing your insights. Thank you, sir. You were terrific. Wow. We learned a lot. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> we're at the end of the show it's been a crazy weekend what is this just january 7th <laughs> can you I, you it? know I, it, it's I'm, I'm comfortable saying happy new year because it's our first show so happy new year to all the folks watching and all our extraordinary guests this was episode one of 2022 episode 263 <laughs> and uh, we're approaching our six-year anniversary ray we have crossed 800 interviews uh, as you know and uh Looking forward to next week, where we're going to have four guests on our show. So get your popcorn ready, get your seatbelt on, <laughs> get ready. Sure. Yeah. Grant Halloran, CEO of Plantful. Grant is an extraordinary visionary CEO. Darren Hefferman, president mid-market at Trentech. Paul Sheard, Sheard, which we could speak to Paul for an hour. Uh, he's yes. a research fellow at Harvard Kennedy School. Incredible macro, micro insights in terms of how our world operates. And Marsha Collier, author, small business owner, and public speaker. And uh, so, yeah, that's that's next week. Ray, your closing remarks on global supply chain disruption, personal career disruption, and digital transformation in terms of value creation disruption, which would summarize our three guests. Let me see if I can tie this into CES as well. It's been oh. a crazy uh, week. Um, you could see at CES in a hybrid mode, um, the level of disruption that's going out there. Every organization is trying to figure out what's about to happen uh, and how to actually respond and react to it. The data from 2021 and 2020 is useless, uh, and they're trying to figure out what those new models are going to look like. It's what we're calling the great refactoring, which is basically these new business models, these new personal aspects aspirations. What Whitney was talking about on the leadership side is really about, you know, people's aspirations have changed. They do want more. They want aspiration. It's not a resignation. People are look, looking to up-level themselves, get to the next level. And if businesses are in the transformation Sanjeev is talking about, you know, that means that we're going to have to hire differently, look at things differently, focused on value. And we've got a new term, the chief value officer. And we're going to see much more of that. Uh, and of course, you know, these are bad tchotchkes, but we'll take them. <laughs> coolest, cool, the coolest thing you saw at CES, right? Oh, I am still in love with this John Deere tractor. I know it is funny oh, yeah, as crap, yeah, yeah. Uh, but you know, having, I, I could drive a combine when I was 14, 16. It's easy. Uh, but the fact that you don't need to be on the farm anymore is complete mobile app. It's got level four, almost level four autonomy, right? You're going to get that on the tractor first. They, they in took 50 million farm images to build their AI model. Okay, the sensors on there are stereographic, lighter based. I mean, it is the state of the art technology. Those folks don't know it, but one of the, one of them are going to be showing up as a BT one fifty winner because that is amazing. It's going to be one of my nominations this year for that. Uh, and then I had fun looking at the Canon stereoscopic like VR. It's a two thousand dollar attachment. You can actually do your own VR um, right off the bat, easy to make. But I've got tons of things uh, that I'll probably blog about. It's just it was fun. I really enjoyed the tactile feel. Of Yes, there were no crowds, usually 180,000 people, 50, 60 showed up. It's a third of the crowds, but the same type of experience. And it was nice. I uh, really, really enjoyed it. That's so fantastic. how are you doing? Well, what, what are you, what's going on in your thoughts? What's new? So, uh, you know, it's uh, travel in the near horizon. Uh, the year is starting off uh, incredibly busy, which is fantastic. Uh, you know, hopefully we can 
you know, combat the, the you know, the health and safety concerns that exist and, uh, you know, get to see more of our business partners and customers and colleagues uh, in 2022. That's what I'm looking forward to. Thank you for sharing, uh, uh, you know, your, your photos and thoughts of CES. I did see you in a massive John Deere tractor. You look this small in it. <laughs> so, so it was great to live vicariously through you when you were at the conference. So appreciate all the work you do, getting all of us connected to these conferences that we're unable to attend and you courageously attend and, and, and share. So thank you. Well, the wheels were definitely taller than me, but this is great. Hey, thanks everyone for being here. I know we're running over. We may be changing the format to do a five minute summary in the future, but hey, welcome to, thanks for being on episode 262. Catch you next week, live from Paris. Uh, we'll do episode 263 um, and uh, it should be some fun. So if it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern. Thanks for watching. And of course, catch us in all different social media norms and please share with us your suggestions for guests. Uh, we are always actively looking for guests. So take care. Bye, everyone.